Well, good morning to Bethany Church on the Hill. How is everyone doing this morning? It's wonderful to see smiling faces because as Christians, we are joyful, are we not? And really, Psalm 1, if you'll turn in your Bibles to that portion of Scripture for our teaching this morning, encapsulates the very joy of the Lord that we ought to have, at least the first couple of verses. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to say a word of thank you. I was with you, if you remember, on September 26th, and uh, wonderful to be back with you this morning. I actually uh, spoke earlier in the introductory portion of our service at Thousand Oaks Bible Church and was able to be with you this morning because another good friend of mine, Mike Riccardi, was able to uh, preach this morning. That had been scheduled, and uh, when I was asked, it gave me the opportunity to say, yes, on December, or excuse me, on uh, October 18th, this is the opportunity for me uh, to come here because Mike Riccardi is filling our pulpit. So uh, what a goodness of the providence of God to be able to allow him to preach there and for me to preach here. Uh, it's a grace of God to be able to do that. If you're looking at Psalm 1, you'll notice that at the end of Psalm 1 and the beginning of Psalm 2, you might have some kind of heading, but it's usually not separated as some of the other Psalms are, and it's because many believe that the, these two Psalms were originally connected. And so I want to read Psalm 1 again and then add Psalm 2 which I'll make reference to. I won't go through it expositorily this morning, as we will Psalm 1, but I do want us to see the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're like the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. It's almost as though Psalms 1 and 2 are the introductory remarks of the psalmist. We don't know exactly who this is. Could be David, could be someone else. And yet... It is really the opening introduction and an evangelistic tone is clearly seen here in Psalms 1 and 2. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, so you follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. And the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The poet John Oxenham wrote this about the way. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. And the high soul treads the high way and the low soul gropes the low. And in between on the misty flats the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there openeth a high way and a low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. Yes, a poignant poem that speaks about the way, and that's why I've entitled the message this morning, Which Way Are You Going? Because clearly in Psalm 1, we are being confronted, even evangelistically, in an Old Testament sense, about the way of the blessed and the way of the wicked. In fact, if I were to outline Psalm 1 for you this morning, it would be in three significant outline points. Here's the first one, the way of the blessed man. And underneath that outline point, I'm going to give you three Ds. It's going to be a three-dimensional uncovering of the way of the blessed man. And then secondly, the way of the wicked man. And again, I'll give you a three-dimensional understanding of that wicked man and his pursuits. And then thirdly and finally, the way of their respective destinies. So, number one, the way of the blessed man. Number two, the way of the wicked man. And thirdly and finally, the way of their respective destinies. And as I outlined this psalm this week, I was incredibly impacted by watching with my wife and a couple of our children a 2020 program. You may have seen it this week. It was under the title and it was the totality of this particular uh, 2020 uh, version of this week. And it was called The Strange Case of Affluenza. Anyone see that? Anyone see that? No one's, one person saw it. Bless you, my child. Bless you. You'll know what I'm talking about. It was the story, the sad and tragic story, of a 16-year-old boy who had very little parenting at all by his mother and his father. In fact, this particular family who hailed from Burleson, Texas, were so wealthy that at one point, given the uh, millionaire status of the father and his sheet metal company, the mom and dad actually moved out of Burleson, Texas to Fort Worth 
into a massive home and they left their 13-year-old son there as a 4,000-square-foot home was accommodating one son alone at the house among his high school buddies. And in the context of this particular life of that young man, he was, of course, by virtue of his parents, very, very affluent and apparently liked to drink a great deal and also do many drugs with his running buddies. And on a particular evening, when he was 16 years old, he had already started driving at 13 against the law, had actually been pulled over at one point, and had uh, undergone some level of um, judgment by the authorities, but not much, had not actually been... uh, uh, counseled or held accountable by his parents, uh, even as they were away, far away from him. They had uh, little parented him. They had apparently begun to live out of the, the overflow of their own lifestyle, uh, the rich life, and they were supplying him with all kinds of money and with this house and with vehicles to drive. And so he experimented with uh, alcohol and drugs for several years, even as a young person. And on a particularly fateful night, about two and a half years ago, he decided to have a party over at his house, and he had uh, several of his buddies and a couple of females there as well, and they drank through the night very heavily. And at one point, they didn't think they had enough alcohol, so he decided that they would all go back into town and buy some more. And they counseled him strongly, these teenager friends of his, not to drive, and he disregarded their counsel, and so he made them all get into his truck, and when they started driving down the road, uh, he was also, because he was being told by those in the vehicle with him to slow down, to be careful, he disregarded them completely, and he began to play chicken with people coming in the opposite traffic, and at one particular point, And there was a young lady whose car malfunctioned on the side of the road. She got out and uh, began asking for help from one of the neighbors. And uh, there was a mother and a daughter who had come out of their home to go and assist her. And then also there was a youth pastor who had some people in his vehicle. And he stopped to help as well. And so there were four people standing in a driveway next to that stalled car. And as this young man came by, he sideswiped the car and then hit all four of them head-on, killing them instantly, including the youth pastor, the mother, the daughter, and the female whose car was malfunctioning. And as a result of that, his truck also overturned. They had two persons, teenagers, in the bed of the truck. They had others in the cab. And so all told, four people lost their lives and over 14 people, including the driver, were injured. And as I watched that 2020 episode and thought about this young man, my horror was overtaken me when, through the process of the program, we began to see under deposition and court order the testimony of the father and the mother the mother acknowledging that she had hardly parented the child at all during all of the years of being with him. And the father was worse. 
In fact, this particular couple had a cover story in a national magazine in which the cover story title was The Worst Parents Ever. And it was sad and tragic to watch as this father and this mother gave their depositions in this court situation. But what's even worse than that was the son pled guilty and the father and the mother settled with everyone who remained out of court. This particular young man, because of his age, was taken not to a, an adult court, but to a juvenile court situation for sentencing. And the judge, believing a particular psychologist and others that he would be better rehabilitated outside of a prison context, the judge ruled that he would serve no prison time whatsoever. And as a result of that, he would receive a number of years of probation. And of course, uh, some civil suits and litigation allowed the depositions to prove what, of course, these families believed, and that was that this family was out of control. Ultimately, everything was settled out of court. He receives no jail time, and he now works in his father's business at the Sheet Metal Company. And when I saw that program, my mind was affixed on Psalm 1. Because what I saw living out in the testimony of their deposition and with the Son Himself, all three of them never having sought forgiveness of anyone, never having admitted anything other than the guilt of what He did, but no remorse because of it. And that they simply decided that the best thing for them to do was to pay everybody off. Buy everybody's forgiveness through the idea of money. And when I heard that and when I saw that, I thought of Psalm 1 and I thought of Psalm 2 and I thought, that's, that's the way of the ungodly. And the way of the ungodly will perish. The way of the blessed will prosper. And what was interesting in this 2020 program was a series of takes with the youth pastor's wife and how at the last part of the program, even through her tears, she said, I hope that even in my husband's death that the message of grace and forgiveness is given to everybody who's listening because I don't want to live in unforgiveness. And I want to be someone who believes and knows that the message of my husband's life and now death is going to mean so much to so many. What a contrast. What a contrast between the way of the blessed and the way of the wicked. And it doesn't mean that the way of the blessed will be blessed in every way at all times and forever. And it doesn't mean that the way of the wicked is always as bad as it could be. But certainly this psalm provides for us what I think is an evangelistic opportunity for the psalmist to say, I'm going to present to you the way of the blessed and the characteristics thereof and the way of the wicked and the characteristics thereof and then you decide. Just like the poem that I read, there is a way 
And you and I must choose which way we're going to go. Do you want to see the life of the blessed? Look at Psalm 1, 1 to 3. The way of the blessed man. I see three major dimensions of the life of this blessed man. And the first one is this. He is dead, or at least dying, to the things of the world. He is dead or dying to the things of the world. Look at Psalm 1.1. Blessed, maybe we should say enviable. Enviable is the man who does this. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice the Hebrew parallelism here. He walks, stands, sits, or in this case, neither walks, nor stands, nor sits in the counsel, the way, or the seat of the wicked, of sinners, of scoffers. Do you see the parallelism there? It's very, very clear. And what this blessed man does by this action is to say that by his life, by his characteristics, by his habits, he is dead or dying to the things of the world. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the counsel of the wicked, with the way of sinners, or with the seat of scoffers. This is a person who is not tantalized by the things of the world. And you know, you and I, coming out of the womb, are prone over our whole life long to be alive to the things of the world and not dead to them. You want to see this? Look back in Genesis chapter 3 at Eve, and you're going to see where the very first sets of sins began, Adam's own lack of leadership, and Eve's response of the temptation of Satan. Look at Genesis chapter 3, and you'll see this come out very, very clearly. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. This is very familiar terrain, I'm sure, to you. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was also with her, and he ate. You notice that three-step dimension of how she was tempted by the serpent? She saw that the tree was good for food. That was something that was to be satiating her physical desire, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was something that was a mental apprehension of that satiation, and that the tree was to be desired to make one what? Wise. The idea of her grasp of wisdom far beyond what she had been told by God the Father. And you know those three parallels there are also seen for us in 1 John chapter 2. Turn over there, 1 John chapter 2. You might have not seen the parallel that John the Apostle gives in 1 John chapter 2 with this same threefold temptation of sin and the world. 1 John 2.15 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then notice this, the desires of the flesh, she thought it was good for food, the desires of the eyes, she looked upon that fruit with favor, I want it, I need it, I must have it, and what? Pride and possessions. She wanted it. She had to have it because it was going to make me wise. I think anyone of us would acknowledge that for us, whether it's the lust for something physical, it's the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life, the pride in possessions, the desire to make me wise, not in a godly sense, of course, because this is talking about the world, but it's something that all of us are tempted by. And do you see what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 1? He's not walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's not standing in the way of sinners. He's not sitting in the seat of scoffers. And by the way, do you see even the digression here? Walk, stand, sit. Someone who's walking along, someone who sees something that is desirable for food, something that's going to satiate their stomach. Someone who stands after they have been walking because they have already been seduced. And then someone who actually sits and partakes of that which they think will be desirable to them or to make them wise. You see, the first dimension of the blessed man, the godly man, and you make a determination about your own life. Do I believe that I am dead to the things of the world or that I'm in the process of dying to the things of the world? Or does the world and its allurements challenge me time and time and time again to partake of that forbidden fruit. The godly man, the blessed man, he's dead. He's dying to the things of the world. Secondly, notice also what characterizes this man. He's delighted at the things in God's Word. Number one, he's dead to the things of the world, but he's delighted in the things of God's Word. He's delighted in the things of of God's word. Notice verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh. He is delighted in the word of God. He can't get enough. And you see the contrast between someone who's not only not dead to the things of the world, but they're delighted in the things of the world. That's the opposite of this godly man. He's dead to the things of the world, but he's delighting in God's Word. He can't have enough of Scripture in his life. You say, what would that look like? Not only his Bible reading, not only his understanding, but his memorization of God's Word. That word delight there, it has the idea that you're cogitating on the Word, that you are memorizing God's Word, that you are feasting upon God's Word. Look at David's affirmation, if in fact he is the one in Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This is another, what we could say is a Torah psalm, a psalm about God's Word. And notice this psalm of David, Psalm 19. 
I believe it is David because the superscription there says a psalm of David, and I believe that that was, in fact, included in the Hebrew Old Testament as ascribing authorship to David. And notice from, of course, what he says about the Word of God in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice what he describes as God's word. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Those are all descriptive ways, synonyms really, even with their own distinctive meaning, that speak about Scripture. It speaks about God's Word. The blessed man, the godly man, the holy man is the man who's dead to the things of the world, but he delights in the things of God's Word. He can't get enough of God's Word. In fact, David goes on to say here in verse 10, more to be desired are they, Scripture, God's law, His testimony, His precepts, His commandments, His fear, His rules, more are, more are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Is that your delight? Is that your delight in God's Word? Would you honestly be able to say, I can't get enough of God's Word? Every day of my life, I've got to have some portion of God's Word to make me come alive spiritually, to make me grow spiritually. Is, is that your commitment? And when David says here in Psalm 19, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, you know that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the New Testament, the word Lord is mentioned and it's ascribed to Jesus Christ. I can't get enough of Christ to see His miracles unfold in the Gospels, to see how He's talked about and preached in the Acts of the Apostles, and to see how the Apostles teach in the Epistles about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love Christ? Do you love Him? Do you want to drink Him in? The only way you can find the Lord Jesus Christ is in His book, the book that He authored, the inspired Scriptures by the Holy Spirit. He's the Lord of the book. An anonymous poet said it this way, I find my Lord in the book wherever I chance to look. He's the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He at the book's beginning gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm, the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior virgin born. He is the son of David with whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck, Yet he is a priest forever, for he's Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, 
light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Now that's a man who spent a lot of time reading Scripture. That's a man who put pen to paper because of his love for the Lord of the book. And by the way, that's the only place you're going to find the Lord Jesus Christ in this book. It's the only place. This book has been given to us. The law of God, the testimony of God, the precepts of God, the right rules of God. And the psalmist says, I'm blessed, I'm enviable because I'm dead to the things of the world and I'm alive, I'm delighting, I'm captivated by the Word of God, by the Torah of Yahweh. That's literally what it should be translated as. The instruction of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, all of the wisdom in this book. And he says, I delight in this. I love this book. It is, it is my constant food. Job said, it is more than my necessary food. Jeremiah said, I ate God's word. And it became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And you know what it says of Moses in Hebrews 11? That he endured the harsh treatment of the Egyptians and he encountered God and God called him to lead the children of Israel and he said he forsook the passing pleasures of sin. He could have had it all. He was the prime minister. And he forsook all of that because he delighted in God and God's word. There's a third dimension of the happy man. Not only is he one who's dead to the things of the world, he's delighted in the things of God's word, but he's also described as a flourishing tree. Look at Psalm 1.3. He is like, you see the description? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. The water is that luxurious connection to the roots which are being plentifully supplied by those streams of water for its life-giving purpose that yields its fruit in its season. It's abundant fruit. It's fruit that has to be there because it's planted by the streams of water and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he what? He prospers. He's successful. I love what it says about Joseph in Genesis 39, both in verse 2 and in verse 23. And it says, And the Lord was with Joseph so that the Lord made everything that Joseph did to prosper so that he became a successful man. And this is a man who went through a lot, didn't he? How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah is called outside the Scripture because of what we read in Scripture as the weeping prophet. And he was the weeping prophet because it didn't appear as though Jeremiah had much fruit to his ministry. Oh, but he did. In fact, Jeremiah speaks like the psalmist. Look in your Bibles at Jeremiah chapter 17. This is, this is an amazing, amazing parallel to Psalm 1. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but this is a wonderful description, so much like what the psalmist says. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. 
Think of the parallel now with Psalm 1, verse 3. God says through Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in whom? Man. Mankind. Cursed is the man. That word curse, that's, that's not a strong enough translation. Damned is the man who trusts in mankind. Consigned to judgment is the man who trusts in himself. That's what he's saying. And he makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns where? Away from the Lord. You know, when I think of someone who trusts in their physical prowess, it says who makes his flesh his strength, I think about those bodybuilders. You ever seen those bodybuilders with those uh, mirrors on the side? And after they do several sets, what are those bodybuilders? What do you see them doing so often? They do their sets and then they go over to that that mirror and what do they do? And I think, that's what Jeremiah is talking about. Someone who's making his flesh his strength. Cursed is that man. And then Jeremiah even gives a a description of that kind of man. Verse 6, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Is that dry? Is that arid to you? Is that dusty? This is that man. He's described that way because he's cursed, because he's a man who trusts in mankind. He trusts in himself. He makes his flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. But notice the contrast, verse 7. Blessed, there's our word again, enviable. Enviable is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. You say, that sounds like it's saying the same thing. It really isn't. It's saying something like this. Blessed is the man who subjectively trusts in the Lord. I'm the subject, and I trust in the Lord as the subject of the person who needs to trust in that Lord. And objectively, the Lord can be trusted. That's what he's saying. And what kind of person is he? How is he likened? Verse 8, He is like a tree planted by water that sends sends out its roots by a stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Does that sound exactly like Psalm 1-3? Jeremiah may have been reading the psalmist mail. He is a person who's blessed because he trusts in the Lord, because the Lord is his trust, And he has his roots like Psalm 1-3, right by the stream, planted by the streams of the water, and he doesn't fear when the heat comes. He doesn't fear when when adversity comes his way, and his leaves remain green, and he's not anxious in a year of drought, nor does he cease to yield fruit. This is a marvelous picture of the blessed man. He's dead to the things of the world. He's delighting in the things of God's Word, and he's described as a flourishing tree. Now, that's the kind of man I want to be. You don't know me well, but all of my growing up years, until I was 18 years old and in college, I was in a home that was directed, a one-parent home by my mother, 
was directed by a, a person, my mother, who was Jehovah's Witness. And so all the growing up years, I heard Jehovah's Witness theology. And, and even though there was a divorce in my situation, and even though we did not go to a kingdom hall because my mother had been shunned because of the divorce, I grew up believing things, or at least hearing things taught, that I came to realize when I was 18 years old weren't true. You say, well, how did you realize that? I had a Bible, and that Bible was given, me, given to me by someone because they knew I was going off to college. And I let that Bible collect dust on the shelf until I began asking eternal questions about my life. Who am I? Where am I going? What's life going to be like after I die? And the Lord in His grand providence gave me the opportunity to take that Bible off the shelf, dust it off, and begin reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in a six-month period of time, my eyes were open. And I came to faith in Jesus Christ, repented of my sins. And I began then, and that was over 40 years ago now. The Lord gave me the opportunity to delight in God's Word, to be dead to the things of this world, and to be described as a flourishing tree. I want to be that blessed man forever and ever and ever. Do you? Do you want to be that blessed person? I know some of your hearts are resonating. Yes, thank God that I am. Some of you may be saying, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Well, I want, you to, show, I want to show you the contrast. Look at verse 4. And this is the way of the wicked man. The wicked are not so... What do you mean, psalmist? Not so, not so what? Well, the wicked man is known by how he's defined. How is he defined in this psalm? Look back at verse 1. He's the walking wicked. You see it there, the counsel of the wicked? The wicked man is the walking wicked. He's the standing sinner of verse 1b, and he's the sitting scoffer of verse 1c. You can tell by the contrast of what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, if you want to know the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man, here's the wicked man. He's known by how he's defined. And how is he defined? He's defined like this. He is a veritable, walking, wicked person. He is defined by being a person who's a standing sinner. Wicked, he goes after evil. Sinner, he misses the mark of God's perfection. And he's a seated scoffer. You know what a scoffer is? Someone who's a mocker. Someone who says, oh yeah, right. I don't believe that. Do you believe that? That's just a crutch for you. That's not true. I believe there are many ways to God. That's who he is. That's the way he's defined. That's the opposite of being the blessed man. And then... These wicked people are known by what they despise. What do they despise? Look back at verse 2. Does he delight in the Torah of the Lord? No. Do wicked people do that? Scoffers do that? Do they delight in God's Word? No. Not on your life. They're skeptics. They mock at God's Word. They, they can't stomach Scripture. 
They don't like the truth. In fact, they want to invent their own truth. They want to invent their own philosophy of life. They want to be those people who don't want to submit to the law of God and to the Lord of that law. And we just read about them in Psalm 2. Do you see them listed there? The nations are enraged. They're plotting in vain. The kings of the earth and their subjects, the rulers, they're taking counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. We don't want rules. We don't want accountability. We don't want God's word in our lives. No, sir. We don't want them at all. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Yeah, they're, they're known by how they're defined. They're the wicked, the sinners and the scoffers, and they're known by how they despise the Word of God. They don't delight in it. They despise the Word of God. And they're also known how they are defined and depicted. And how are they depicted? Like chaff. Verse 4, like chaff which the wind drives away. You know, the wheat, that's the good stuff. And the chaff is the stuff that blows away in the wind because it is worthless. That's the very depiction of the wicked man. And this, my friends, is the choice that all of us have. The way of the blessed or the way of the wicked. And that brings us to our third and last outline point. And it is this, the way of their destinies. The way of their destinies. Just like a faithful Old Testament evangelist Here's what the psalmist says, verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. He will not stand in the judgment. That is, will not stand righteously, will not stand upright, nor will this sinner, the Old Testament word for someone who doesn't know the Lord, will he be in the congregation of the righteous. And then he finally says in the latter part of verse 6, the way of the wicked will what? Perish. Perishing. He will eternally perish. I think that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 2.12, kiss the son. That means do homage to the son. Obey the Son. Bow down before the Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, lest He, Christ, be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. And then He goes right back to the blessed man. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. My friends, this is an evangelistic call. 
This is that psalm that's the gateway to all the other psalms, and it tells us in such clear, stark terms. Here's the contrast. Here's the enviable man, the happy man, the blessed man, the godly man, the righteous man, the believing man, and here's the wicked man, and he is wicked, and he is a sinner, and he is a scoffer, and he's a mocker, and they try to plot against the king that is the king of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they actually did, didn't they? And they put him on the tree. They didn't kiss the son. They didn't do homage to the son. They killed the son of God. That's the biography of the wicked man. What about that blessed man? Where's the way of his destiny? Look at the first part of verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of of the righteous. You say, well, sure he does. He's omniscient, is God. What does it mean that he knows the way of the righteous? Oh, he knows in the sense that he has chosen the way of the righteous and he gives his love to the way of the righteous and he blesses the righteous and he gives favor to the righteous and he gives them bounty and beauty and blessing so that they might kiss the Son. He loves them. He knows their way. He has spiritual intimacy with those who repent and turn to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, my friends, this is an opportunity for you and for me to ask the most important eternal question of our life. Which way am I going? Which road am I on? If you, like me, ask those eternal questions, who am I? Where am I going? What's the right way? The psalmist has answered the question. It's the way of the godly. It's, it's being dead to the things of the world. It's, it's being delightful in the things of God's Word. And it's the very description of someone who's a luxurious, flourishing tree who in everything he does, he prospers. And the wicked, it's not so. They are wicked by their very design and desire. And they are sinners and scoffers. And they plot against the Lord and against his anointed. And to that perishing doom, they deserve. Now that's not a very, very popular message, but it is a true one. It's the message of the age, isn't it? It's the message of all ages. I ran across somewhat recently the Genevan Psalter of Psalm 1, put to rhyme. And here it is as we close. How blessed is the man whose walk is not in evil counsel which the wicked plot, who does not stand where sin its pleasure offers and will not take his seat among the scoffers. But his delight is in God's covenant law. By night and day he ponders it with awe. Behold, the righteous man is like a tree which by the streams yields fruit abundantly, whose leaves 
are green and shall not fade or perish. In all he does, the righteous one shall flourish. But wicked men are not like him, for they resemble chaff that winds will drive away. Their downfall and destruction is at hand. The wicked shall not in the judgment stand, nor sinners in the righteous congregation. The Lord our God shall judge their generation. He watches o'er the way of righteous men, but doomed forever is the way of sin. I can't tell you what's in the heart of a father and a mother who don't parent their son. And I can't tell you what's in the heart of a son who decides to go on a drunken binge and mow down people to their death. But I do know this. The enviable man is dead to the things of the world, delighting in the things of God's word, and is described as a flourishing tree in the courts of our God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is a sober word, but this is a true word. And it's a word that we must all hear and heed. May we do so because we desire to be that blessed, enviable man. And we do not want to be counted among the wicked who perish. I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know and love and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would see in his death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead the opportunity to fly to Christ, to flee to him, in repentance, turning from your sin and placing your faith, your confidence, your trust in him and him alone. Then you'll be the blessed man. Oh Lord, bring it to pass by your glory, for your truth in your son. In his name we pray, amen.